Hello, Questers. This is Mandy, the host of Caster Quest, inviting you to enjoy our podcast where we explore the rich and vibrant world of Patrick Rothfuss's best-selling fantasy series, The Kingkiller Chronicle, soon to be adapted as a major motion picture and television show produced by the award-winning creator of Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Hungry for more content? Perhaps you will enjoy our recaps of HBO's Game of Thrones, Over the Garden Wall, animated Batman films, or our world-famous erotic fanfiction reads. Whatever you're in the mood for, if you love a good story, humor, impromptu parody songs, and thousands of pop culture references, you'll enjoy our show. You can find CasterQuest on SoundCloud, iTunes, and of course, our amazing network, the Earth Station One Network at ESOPodcast.com. What are you doing? Why are you taking pictures of me? Creepy. MVG does not approve. (laughs) (laughs) You never want to have sex again, do you? (laughs) I mean, it's okay. You could you could just tell me. (laughs) So we were saying. (laughs) Okay. Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome. I'm the Duke. I'm the Duchess. We are here in episode 36 covering The Lies of Locke Lamora. By Scott Lynch. Scott Lynch, part of the Gentleman Bastard series. And in this episode, we are going to cover the interlude entitled Jean Tannen through the end of chapter seven. So that's two interludes and two chapters. Can you handle it? I hope you can, because we're going to dig in. Next up, we are going to cover the interlude called Up the River, Chapter 8, and the interlude that's entitled The Half-Crown War. So that's an interlude, a chapter, and the interlude afterwards. Look, Scott Lynch has got to stop writing this weird-ass structure. This is just... It's just too goddamn much. You'll settle in pretty pretty soon. I don't know. Why don't you go over our spoiler policy? Okay. So our spoiler policy is very simply that Liz has read these books. I have not read these books. And so therefore, we will not spoil anything beyond Chapter 7 of The Lies of Locke Lamora. Right, because Chapter most 6 of- is fair game. <laughs> most of the fun of this podcast is listening to Chad make... Wild ass predictions about what's going to happen next. So. It always it always scares me when people say that because that takes place in about two minutes of the podcast. In the other <laughs> hour and a half, people love the predictions. Well, oh, okay, all right. I'm just concerned about the other hour and a half and whether or not they love that. I'm sure it's fine. Okay, <laughs> I hope so. We're moving forward anyway. So before we jump into the first interlude, the last few weeks we have been covering uh, sort of getting to know you questions for our listeners who weren't with us in our previous book club. Yes. So this week it's my turn and I have a question for you. Awesome. So I thought we'd talk about fantasy tropes. What is your favorite and least favorite literary trope found in fantasy novels? Okay. So I'll go with my, I'll go with my least favorite first. 
and that is, as much as I love fantasy, I am really not a fan of the alternate universe inside the normal world sort of thing. Sort of like you get with uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where you know one minute you're in the Burger King bathroom, and the next minute you've gone through a portal in the sink, and you land in some crazy world where you're a king. Like That's always sort of bothered me. There's some good fantasy out there that sort of follows that, but it's just always sort of distasteful to me for whatever reason. I don't know why. Okay. And the hmm, my favorite one is a little tougher to come up with. I've said it before. I'm a huge fan of sort of like the story within a story where inside of the story you're getting like critical information that's sort of building out things about the narrative, things about the characters that are, you know, going to kind of solve mysteries. So that's probably my favorite sort of trope overall. I'm okay. a big fan of that. Yeah. So for me, I think my favorite, and it's this sounds kind of generic and maybe lame, but it's true. My favorite trope in fantasy is the whole good versus evil thing. And that's mm. just what I love about the genre. In other genres, you don't get to have that that pure conflict, you know, everything kind of has to be, you know, especially in, in more modern novels, everything kind of has to be gray or complicated. And, and I, I love just a classic good versus evil fight for the universe kind of conflict. I just love that. I never get tired of it. And I like, you know, shades of gray stories sometimes too, but, but, but I really like that. And it's something that I like about YA literature as well. You know, it, every, everything doesn't have to be morally ambiguous. Um, sometimes it can just be a, a simple story. And I really like that. Yeah. My least favorite trope, and I've talked about it on the podcast before, so we all know how much I hate this. It's the female character who is not like other girls, <laughs> you know, but she's not like other girls because she likes knives, you know, and she wears pants, you know, and all the other girls wear dresses, but she can't wear a dress because she's not like them. She wears pants. And I'm like, girl, like, can't we have like confident, like an awesome female strong character who, you know, rocks a dress every now and then? I don't know. That just, that just bothers me that like, like you have this character who is somehow she's imbued with awesomeness because she's not feminine. So. Yeah, it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Bugs the crap out of me. But yeah, there it's you a have it. Yeah. It's a problem in the, in the genre for sure. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny my when you asked me about it, I was also thinking about one of the gender gender sort of things that bothers me and it's it's when all the women just completely do not understand the men. <laughs> That's right. And all the men just completely do not understand the women. As though we come from different planets and don't eat the same food. Right. You know, like, men, who can grab, who can wrap their brains around those men with their swingy parts between their <laughs> legs? We get, like, they just, right. they come from different worlds and one plus one <laughs> equals three with them. Like, what the, like, not that I different. Fold my arms underneath my breasts and sniff at you. <laughs> exactly. Tug my braid. So, yeah, that. That's that's one that gets me too. Yeah. So so, I, yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of gender issues in in this genre that we love so much. But that's that's not what we're here to talk about. <laughs> we get too complainy. We don't want to go down that rabbit there's, hole. We're not going to have that issue because there's no women in this book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to bring that up later. Yeah. <laughs> 
So not <laughs> nothing to worry about here. Well, let's talk about Jean Tannen. Let's do that. One of my favorite all-time characters in any book or movie that I have ever read or watched. It's a good character. He's a great character. And so in this interlude, we get a little background on him. It's the first interlude, the first flashback that's not from kind of from Locke's point of view. Yeah, I think this one is still told mostly from Locke's point of view. The next one is told almost entirely from Jean Tannen's point of view. Right. So we kind of get the idea that, yeah, Jean's going to be an important character. Yeah. And we get a little of his background, and we, we kind of get to see the story of what happens when Jean is brought to the thief maker, uh, by the thief maker, to Father Chains to join the gang. And Locke doesn't like him. Not <laughs> right away. I don't like him. It's not like me. <laughs> he doesn't like him because Jean is very uh, soft-spoken, and he's very recently been made an orphan. He's obviously didn't grow up on the streets. He's never uh, charmed a coat. He's never stolen anything. He's he's fat. He's uh, quiet and shy, and he cries at night. I think also Locke gets a sense right away that he might be just as smart as him, and there's some competition there. He also probably feels as though he hasn't earned this. Like, this is the best situation that Locke has ever found himself in. Right. You know, since he was a little, little boy and, you know, was lived with his mother probably. And who knows what that was like. That may not have been a good situation either. But since then, he's landed in a pretty awesome spot for a Kamori orphan. You know, like, he, he doesn't get a whole lot better than that. And who's this soft, fat dough, dough boy who rolls up in here, you know, and he's going to eat all the food. Look how fat he is. <laughs> right, I don't know. Um, no, that's a good point. And I think it seems like also part of Locke's coping strategy for living on the streets and living the life that he did was a sense of pride in not being like those people, those soft people, yeah. and a pride at being hardened and streetwise and tough. And yeah, so yeah, here comes one of those people that he's not like and he's proud to not be like into his inner sanctum, into his glass fairyland. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's not cool with it. No, uh uh-uh. And he gets, he gets mean with Jean right away pokes fun at him, teases him, says something about his parents, insensitive about his parents. And then we get to see another side of Jean. So as soon as he says something about his parents, within within a half a second, Jean crosses the room, gets him in a chokehold, throws his ass on the floor, and then before he can get back up, smacks him square in his tiny little mouth. You know, and chains, you know, kind of breaks it up and reminds Locke that, hey, you know, maybe when you don't know what the hell's going on, you should keep your mouth shut, you idiot. I think the exact quote is, when you don't know everything you could know, it's a fine time to shut your fucking noisemaker. Yeah. (laughs) One of the things I noticed about the issue with Locke and Jean Tannen at this age, too, you know, is back to when Locke says he's not one of us. And it's not that he's not one of us, a gentleman bastard. It's that he's not one of us a thief. And I feel like that's showing a little bit of Locke's prejudices and his kind of pride at this age and what, you know, is most important to him. So at this point, even though he's a gentleman bastard, being a thief might be more what he identifies with than anything else. That's that core characteristic of him is being a thief. And this guy who he might be willing to accept as a gentleman bastard, he does not accept as a thief. Because he doesn't fit his preconceived notion. 
I would agree with that. And I would add that it seems to me that one of Locke's defining characteristics is his love of stealing. It's yeah. the first thing that's mentioned about him, and it is mentioned over and over and over again. And it's interesting when you look at that within the context of the spiritual system that the the people have mm-hmm. this the the idea of this thirteenth god, and so the you know the Komori people have twelve gods. We have this unnamed thirteenth god, and it's an interesting way to explore morality. We've talked about this a little bit already yeah. on the podcast, but the idea that Locke seems to have been born the perfect priest for this unnamed thirteenth god. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, um, the god of thieves. So it's just interesting to look and and I keep talking about, but I just. I just think it's really cool how you can look at um, someone's morality as defined by how closely they stick to their chosen path and mm, their, yeah. their chosen deity or whatever. So this is his chosen deity, the God of Thieves. He defines morality as doing whatever would make the, the, the unnamed 13th happy. And so, you know, that's his moral path. Yeah. And he sticks to it better than anyone else in the book. When I played Dungeons and Dragons when I was younger, yeah, well, not when I was younger, I still play it, but, but this is hot, by the way. <laughs> my favorite multi-class character was the priest thief. Yes, yeah. we love those contradictions. That's right. Yeah, and we see a lot of that in Jean, um, especially throughout this section that we're going to talk about. He's a math whiz and a capable brawler. We see that right away um, because as they sit down to dinner, Chains starts giving them math problems and he starts really kind of showing Locke, hey, asshole. Yeah. <laughs> not everybody's not everybody's good at the same things as you, but other people have other skills that are also valuable. Yeah, So absolutely. he deliberately sets a, a problem to both Jean and Locke that he knows that Jean is going to be able to solve easily and Locke won't. Yep. And Jean does. He's not a jerk about it, but he, he shows that he is he's capable in this way. Yeah, and and Chains has the wisdom to understand that if you're building a if you're building a crack team, Ocean's Eleven team here, you need different skill sets. You need different people to do different things. And while Locke might be the brains of the operation because of this just inherent understanding he has of people and thievery, it doesn't mean he's the smartest guy in the room. Right. So let's talk for a minute about Chain's mad parenting skills. Yeah. Because I love how he handles all this whole situation. And and I'm kind of jealous because I I don't think I have those kind of skills. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if we made our kids start competing for meals, maybe. I I mean, I can't say it didn't cross my mind. (laughs) If we make them all do math problems. (laughs) <laughs> that could work. <laughs> but so we have this guy and he's taking these hardened street kids and he's turning them into something else. And we've talked about it a little bit before, but it's still interesting to compare the way the thief maker handled his charges and the way chains did, you know, in the thief makers care, the kids were inspired to be brutal and clannish because yeah. that's the way he controlled them. He used fear and dominance yeah, to keep yeah. them in line. And, uh, and, you know, Chains doesn't need hot pepper oil to let his kids, but he lets his kids experience the consequences of their actions, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and he's inst- you see him instilling them with morals. They're not the kind of morals we'd expect, but they're his morals. And he, like, he's made them into a family, and it just, like, warms my little heart. 
I don't know why I love it. You know what else I find interesting? So this whole, you know, dynamic, you know, Locke and Jean are going back and forth and they're not, you know, they're not really, they don't really like each other and Chains is saying, you can't eat. Well, okay, I'll let you eat, but you have to do this. And and all throughout this, Callow and Galdo are just in the background going, uh, you know, what, whatever, can we just eat? Like, like they are just nonplussed about this whole situation. They really don't have time for all this bullshit drama between these two boys. <laughs> and that to me was the most interesting part of this whole sort of interaction from my perspective, because that to me was probably the most realistic thing. And I say that because I used to work in a halfway house for troubled teens. And this dynamic where somebody new would come into the house, there'd be some sort of bickering and back and forth and drama, but the rest of the boys would be like, whatever, I don't have time for this bullshit. Hey, you want to go, you know, hey, you want to go do this? You want to go watch MTV? You want to go to, like, like they just couldn't, you know, they just did not want to deal with all that BS. Is very realistic. Like, this reminds me exactly of what a day in that halfway house looked like. You know, and all those boys in that halfway house were very, a very similar type of scenario. They weren't necessarily orphans, though some of them were, but they were all in these, you know, sort of troubled situations. And they sort of, you'd have people come in with the raw emotions of just having arrived. You'd have other people who'd been there for a while who were like, uh, whatever, um, I'm going to go, <laughs> I'm going to go play magic the gathering. Fuck you. Like I'm out like, you know, so it was just interesting to me to read this and put it back in that perspective of having worked there and being like, yeah, that's pretty much how it would go. That is an interesting perspective. And I like how Chains didn't try to diffuse the conflict. He lets Gene throw Locke across the room. Yeah. And then he's like, yeah, you deserve that. Oh, and by the way, you need to clean up all this, these broken pick your jars and radishes yeah, when, you, when you've scraped yourself up off the floor. I didn't have that option when I worked in the halfway right. house. I wish I did at times. I wish you could have. There were times where I wish I, I wish it did. <laughs> when shit got bad, I locked myself in the office and I turned off the power to the house. Oh, God. <laughs> but seriously, like, yeah. when, when things got real rough and everybody wanted to go a little bit crazy, I'd be like, all right, I, I have the key to the, I have the key to the, uh, to the, to the power i can turn the circuit breaker off if you guys really want to be dicks about things but the one part that's not real really realistic in terms of my experience is sort of the way in which they kind of apologize to each other and become friends not that they not that the boys in the house wouldn't sort of apologize to each other and become friends they would but they would do it in a a different sort of way like it wouldn't be that overt they wouldn't kind of talk about their feelings it would just be like Hey, uh, I was able to like sneak a Maxim magazine at school today. You want to go look at it? And like, that would be like, they would find some sort of external thing that they could sort of share together or that they could sort of talk about or experience. Hey, uh, let's talk about, let's talk about baseball or something. And that would be how they would sort of bond, but they would never actually talk about their feelings that that would never happen. But it's interesting to see, again, what we see Chains building here is a family. Yeah. And you see him instilling spirituality into the kids and building bonds between them, showing them that they need each other. Yeah. So the, they're being 
the difference between kids in a halfway house who know they're going somewhere else and kids who are initiated into a gang who know they're going to depend on each other in the future. Yeah, yeah. And who are being taught emotional skills, mm-hmm. you know, and and Chains is is aware of their mental and emotional state and and I love how he uses um Jean's coming as a way to handle problems he's seeing with Locke. And yeah. I love this quote where he says You've reached a certain age where many boys just seem to sort of fold up their better judgment and set it aside for a few years. And I was like, oh, yes. <laughs> I know that age. Yeah. And yeah. He, he uses Jean's coming to kind of talk to him about that and be like, I'm not having that shit. Because as much as Chains is a father figure and he's loving and nurturing, he's also like... <sighs> At some point later, he he basically tells Jean that uh, either he's either he's going to be a successful sword fighter, or maybe I've just arranged your demise. But either way, either works way. for me. Yeah, win win. <laughs> but he tells Locke, the world is full of conundrums that will tax your skills. Do you presume that you will always get to choose the ones that best suit your strengths? And Locke shows growth in here as well, and maturity that's, again, maybe a little bit beyond what we would expect a character of his age, but he shows that he's got enough humility to accept that he was wrong, and that this gang, this family is important enough to him that Mm -hmm. he's willing to to bend. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So for me, the end where, you know, Chains has a toast to him, and he says to Jean Tannen, who lost one family, but came to another soon enough, just made me like, (laughs) I love it. The other uh, the other thing that's important in this is in part four, when Locke and Jean are having sort of their their little heart to heart talk. Right. Locke reveals what what I've suspected all along, in that he doesn't know whether his father is alive or dead. Right. So he doesn't know if he's an orphan, and the placement of that to me is conspicuous because it's in the interlude right after we have met the Grey King. Right. Yes, it is. And how cute is it that Locke stole him some glasses? He stole him some glasses, but he doesn't understand nearsightedness. He does not understand nearsightedness. That's and right. I like the little conversation that Jean and Locke have on the roof. Um, Jean, you know, Jean is up there. Locke brings him these glasses, and they talk a little bit about Jean making the decision to join this gang. And it's interesting to see this perspective of an outsider from the underworld coming in for the first time mm-hmm. and deciding, is this something that's okay for me to do? You know, he wasn't raised stealing. He wasn't raised in this environment. And Locke says to him, you know, it's an honest trade when you look at it like we do. <laughs> so again, it's just highlighting that theme that morality is about perspective. Yeah. And then they make plans to go out and plunder. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's adorable. We'll let Callow and Galdo sit their asses on the steps. <laughs> I, you know, when when Locke says, and we'll go out and plunder, you know, and, and Jean says, is that safe? Or I think he says something to that effect. Right. I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, I don't know, man. This may like bringing this rookie along with, with you, Locke, who doesn't quite understand things the way you do, might get Jean Tannen killed. <laughs> <laughs> either way. What, either way works for Locke. All right, chapter six. Chapter six is called Limitations. And this is where the shit starts to hit the fan. It does. That's where the piss starts to hit the bucket. It does. Oh, God. So Locke, at the end of the last 
current chapter, Locke was being kind of pulled away by the Red Hands, who are Kappa Barsavi's men, and said, the Kappa needs you right now. Yeah, no something delays. urgent's going on. Something urgent's coming on. And so they take him to where the Kappa is, and they find out that that urgent thing is that Nazca, the Kappa's daughter, and Locke's sort of betrothed, it was killed Yeah, by the Grey King. She's mostly dead. She is mostly dead. They're going to call it Miracle Max. <laughs> I need a miracle. So it's a it's a horrifying and shocking turn of events. And we can see that Locke is really shaken up yeah, by it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because his usually very careful and smooth demeanor, especially around the kappa, it, it starts to crack a little. Yeah. He, he says things like, why would he do this now? This doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Which, if he was in his right mind, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have, have said, said those kinds of things. Yeah. Well, and this is interesting to me because, so in the interlude, the Jean Tannen interlude, we have to deal with sort of Jean Tannen and his emotions around having just lost his parents. And in this chapter, we have to deal with both uh, Barsavi and Locke and their emotions and finding out that Nazca has just died. And so you're dealing with, you know, these people and their, and their reactions to death and because of the way that Lynch decides to write with this much, much more detached sort of third-person point of view, you just you don't get quite the, the depth of the emotion that you get, say, when we read the King Killer Chronicle and Quoth lost his family. In the King Killer Chronicles with Quoth, in that first-person point of view that he has there, you, you really get this incredible depth of what it was like in that moment. And here you just have a, a more of a detachment. But Lynch still does show you in their actions and the way they behave kind of what they're dealing with from an emotional level. But it's just a difference in the style and the narrative and the way they choose to tell it. But I think it's an interesting comparison. Well, it, it's not only a difference in the style and the first person versus third person, it's a difference in the intent. You know, I feel like yeah. in Rothfuss's writings are about making you feel things. And he describes emotions and feelings of his characters at length. So he he brings you into his character's emotional state. And Lynch's writing is more about the plot. Yeah, absolutely. And yes, about the characters as well. But it's not as much about what the characters are feeling and more about what are they up to? What's going to happen next? Yeah, absolutely. Where so, are these relationships going? Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. Yeah, it's about what's happening. It's about where it's going to go. It's about what people's motivations are. Whereas with Rosfuss, he wanted you to sit in it. You know, he wanted you to sit in it and be where Quoth was. And you're right. It's just a different intention, you know, a different thing. Whereas, you know, Kingkiller was very much about a very intense study of one character. And this is very much about look at what's going to happen with this cast of characters in this really awesome, cool world and all the cool shit that they do. You know, it's just a different, again, a different style, you know. But I like the comparisons. I mean, it's easy to compare. And I don't know if the authors probably don't like it. <laughs> Their yeah. books are always getting compared, but the two characters are so alike, you know, this, this sort of orphaned, morally gray, uh, roguish hero. It's hard not to compare them also because we just read them both back to back. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we find out that Nazca 
Locke, in taking a look at her, realizes that it was a scorpion hawk that struck her on the neck that caused her death. And then they packed her in a barrel of horse piss to deliver her to Kappa Barsavi. Sending a, you know, sending a message and taking this monumental act that essentially makes it impossible for them to have any sort of peaceful resolution. Right, and that is not the the impression that we had had from the Great King in his conversation with Locke was that he wanted to negotiate. Yeah. He was going to do something that would bring him out so he could negotiate with him. And now it seems to have made it very obvious that either the Great King is an idiot or he doesn't really want to negotiate. Yeah. So Barsavi, yeah, we, it seems pretty obvious that it's the latter. However, Kappa Barsavi is leaning towards the he's an idiot theory. He's yeah, but he is he is just so blinded by his grief and his pride. Um, he thinks that the, the Gray King couldn't possibly understand either the seriousness of what he's done. Well, and he says he he must not be Kamori, but we right. know from our interaction with him that he is Kamori. Right, and Locke knows all this stuff that he can't let Barsavi knows that of he knows. That. Yeah. And I love the the bullshit. Bullshit very well. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> How much can I tell him? He doesn't know if the Falconer's watching, but he needs to do something. So he is able to at least let Barsavi know that there is a probability that the Grey King has a bonds mage. Yeah. And that the the she was killed by a scorpion hawk, not by the horse urine, and that this is probably a fucking trap. Yeah, exactly. Um and Barsavi hears what he's saying, but he says, well, you know, if one bonds mage can best 100 knives, then the Grey King has chosen his weapons better, and that's okay. But I, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. So he says, well, Locke, you know, we're just going to go with 100 guys, and you and Jean, and we're all going to go together to confront the Grey King. And uh, that's that's a problem for Locke, as in the, the last section <laughs> yeah. we read that the Grey King is going to be forcing him to impersonate him at the meeting. So that poses a problem. We a got a problem. A problem of physics. <laughs> a problem of physics. Yeah, exactly. I have those all the time. Do you? <laughs> I do. I bet, I bet. <laughs> so the Locke and the gang um, get together in the next section and they, they discuss the conundrum. And Locke says, it was insane before, but now it's become malicious. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And they discuss, you know, kind of what their options are and, you know, do we run? No, we have to stick it out. You know, and then they, uh, Locke says, you know, I need to have a conversation with either the Grey King or the Falcon or we need to let them know about this problem. And they, they summon him at the top, their, to their rooms at the top of the tower just so they have to just, walk up the just stairs. Just to be a dick. Just, just to be a dick. Fantastic. And it's just uh, Locke in the room when the Falconer shows up. So I think this was interesting because Locke is sitting there and we see him sitting alone in the room and he he's praying. So again, we see his commitment to his religion. Um, and as he prays, he only asks for two things. First, he says... I, I hope that you still find me amusing. Either yeah. <laughs> either stop testing me, or if you have to test me, I, I hope you're at least getting a kick out of this. Yeah. <laughs> and then he prays for Nazca, and he very sincerely says, do what you can for her. You know, she was she was a good garista to me, and she was a friend. So we see his commitment to his 
family, his chosen clan. Yeah. Um, and his sincerity there. And the falconer, when he comes into the room, even says, if you wish to measure a man's true penitence, observe him when he believes himself to be dining alone. Yeah. And that's when the falconer shows up and Locke treats him pretty much exactly like he treated him the last time when he said, nice bird, asshole. Right. Like he has the same sort of just irreverence. And this time the falconer without uh, his dad, I mean, without the great king being around, the falconer decides to not take it. And he's going to... Kicks his mental ass. He does. He makes him weaken the knees. (laughs) Good one. He does. Yeah. Good one. Not the way you make me weaken the knees. Aw. It's a different sort of weakness. Rarely get out my silver thread. (laughs) Well, (laughs) thank God. I mean, you know... Some people are into that, and that's I, cool. That's cool. It's not, it's, We're not judging. It's not for me to judge. Whatever you do in your own time <laughs> with your magical pain stuff is entirely fine to you. <laughs> I'm sure that there are clubs, you know, that the Carthani wizards, you know, are the coolest guys at. I can't remember the last time I stitched a guy's name onto a dead person's hand. <laughs> well, must have been Back college. In the day. <laughs> Remember that thing? <laughs> Used to have it all the time back in the way. Oh, yeah, magical pain induction. That's right. Used to eat it all the time. Yeah, so he kicks the ever-loving shit out of, out of Locke. Right, and so we get a little another glimpse at the magic system here. Mm-hmm. We haven't seen a whole lot of it. We know that there are bonds, mages, but we start to see a demonstration of, of what what they can do. So he's the, the falconer has a sort of sort of magic thread. He's twisting it in his hand. It's sort of a stand in for a wand, I guess in a, in a lot of places that you have the magician have some sort of focus mm-hmm. here. It's a string. He yeah. also tells us that if he writes someone's name on parchment, he can control them. So there's a name magic. There's, yeah, If it's your true name. Right. And then he talks a little bit about Locke's name. Right. And, and tells us that, which we sort of suspected, that Lamora is not his real last name because it stands for the shadow. In the throne the Theron shadow. language, it's, it stands for shadow. Right. It's a little <sighs> on the nose. God. <laughs> Come on. But Locke is his real name. But he tells them that he tells him that even his first name would be enough for him to have mastery over him. Yep. We also know that um, they have warg-like abilities. This guy has warg-like abilities. He can see from the point of view of the falcon. Right. And he seems to have some sort of telepathy, too, because he is able to put words into Locke's mind yeah. without speaking. We He's already know that, that he can uh, confuse men. Um, alter reality in a way he can block crossbows. He's pretty much a badass, all-purpose so, wizard type dude. Yeah, so why don't these Carthani, is that what they're called, the Carthani wizards? Right. Why don't they like just absolutely rule the world? They, we do not know. Hmm. We do not know. We'll Yet. See. Yet. Sorry. We'll have to see. You know, so they're just not interested. They're just not into it. Just not really into all that dominance and ruling. <laughs> Humiliation. I mean, they're under other stuff, but you probably wouldn't have heard of it. Yeah. 
So the falconer tortures Locke and then threatens to torture all of his friends and basically says, uh, I need you alive. I don't need them. And if, they, if I don't see anything other outside of abject submission, I'm going to kill them. So quit yeah. fucking with me. And this this guy quickly makes himself the worst person in the entire novel so far. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like this this is the this is the bad guy. This is the big straight guy. up bad dude. Yeah. Absolutely. N- yeah. No question about it. Oh, but he does let Locke go eventually. Well, only cuz he well cuz he needs he right. has to. Right. And uh Locke comes downstairs and says, "Apparently I'm not as charming as I think I am." <laughs> <laughs> he also well, says another of the best lines in the book, yeah. which is Beer now, bitch later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, there's one other thing that I noted in this uh, interaction with the Falconer that I want to go back to okay. briefly. And that is that when Locke says, your master, mm. blah, 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 the Falconer insists, he says, my client. Right. So there is a little bit of a an area that... Uh, of uh, you know, kind of anger and pride that that Locke can maybe explore. That I suspect will come back around. Right, right. All right. So yeah. So Locke tells Jean they sit down. And, tells uh, who? Jean. Oh <gasps> my God, Jean! You ain't gonna believe what happened. <laughs> I'm trying so hard. It's growing on me. Yeah. It is. It is. He had me like a worm on a hook, dangling me in front of them catfish. <laughs> I felt like red Georgia clay on a hot asphalt. (laughs) So Jean has one of his, my favorite lines of his, you know, he says, um, I could do so very much to him without killing him. I very much hope I get to try. (laughs) And, um, you know, we've talked a lot about the contrast and the characters of this book. And I just love how often we see Jean reading romance novels. Okay, every yeah, turn yeah. he's mm-hmm. sitting there, he's in a book and it's and it's some sappy romance. And then he turns around and says, I really hope I get to torture him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and we see it in, in Locke, who is this devoted priest, but at the same time, he's like a kamikaze liar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and apparently he can't have sex. Yeah. Can't get so, it up, man. So poor Locke, you know, finally decides... Apparently, it's been whatever. It's been a while. It's been a long dry spell for him. He finally decides to go get his brains wenched out. Only he doesn't get his brains wenched out. Well, and what I want to know is how come every prostitute in any fantasy novel is always a redhead? Not everyone. There's only two at the Gilded Lilies, okay? Just all the important ones <laughs> But the ones, ones are. you meet. <laughs> so, so, so she's Roz. She's Roz from Game of Thrones. She is definitely Roz from Game of Thrones. The expository whore. Felice slash Roz. Right. <laughs> so if that's true, she's going to show up everywhere. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't know how many prostitutes I've ever had had the it's not you, it's me line dropped on them. <laughs> I think it's probably not that often. Probably not that often. But she considers it a professional challenge. A professional challenge. It's okay. So I think it's interesting. So here we have this the character who's a prostitute. She's obviously very confident and empowered. She doesn't um, seem 
in in any way. You don't get a. She's a, not upset or angered. Yeah. 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 She's not like a poor, abused, rejected woman or anything like that. It's just interesting because this is only the third female character that we have met in the books in 300 some pages that have more than a line or two or that aren't or that actually are or that aren't just mentioned but that we actually meet that there's actually a conversation with we have nazca Mm -hmm. and we have the doña doña savera Mm -hmm. and felice i mean there's a couple little bit players right but yeah but I think it's interesting to kind of look at, okay, so there's been three female characters. None of them are main characters. No. At all. But I like them all. You know, they're all like capable. They're all confident. None of them are like, oh, I have to wear pants because I don't like women, you know. Well, we've thrown, there's been a lot of female characters in the background and in a variety of different positions. Right. So, you know, there's been a lot of, particularly in what we would consider traditionally male roles. Right. So Scott Lynch does not have a problem dropping, you know, female fighters into, you know, those situations and right. nobody bats an eye at it. Right. So it doesn't seem to be out of place in this setting, which I think is cool. Mm-hmm. 200 and something pages in so far, we don't have any real strong female characters yet, but I, I mean, suspect I would argue that's going to change. That the, that the Doña is. Uh, yeah, actually, you know? I would agree. Yeah. Um, agree and and she seems to be her husband's equal in business and. Or, or better. Com- yeah. yeah, commonly regarded as, as the more. Uh, intelligent and capable of the two, particularly in the, in terms of being a, an alchemist and a botanist. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's pretty cool. That is, Like, yeah. none of his characters are, well, rub me the wrong way, you know? No, and, and the other thing that, that I like about the Donia is the Donia is not a strong female character because she takes on male attributes. Right. Which too yes. often we see. Yes, and I like that there aren't female characters crammed in for the sake of being like i need a female character so i will take this stock female and just kind of plop her in there you know yeah it's they all make sense in the story yeah yeah so it doesn't bother me that that all the main characters are dudes at this point and there's sabatha who's off somewhere and we haven't seen her yet yeah but um but i like that so an important thing to note here is with the uh the redheaded prostitute and lock came looking for a particular redheaded woman that he could not get, uh-huh. which means that my prediction <laughs> was wrong. Yep. She is not, she is not a blackheaded Winona Ryder stand-in. She is, I'm sorry. You can still picture her that way. I think it was the last episode I said Ava Green might be a good casting for mm-hmm. her. I was so wrong. Nope, nope. And you, you said several times, we know she has dark hair. Yeah, and you just you just let me just. I did. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I loved hearing you be wrong. Do. Oh, this is what keeps us going, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> also, one of the best lines in the novel again gets to be dropped by Felice, which is the last thing she says to him is, "You're fucked, just not just by not me." By me. <laughs> <laughs> so. I'm going to I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate with this part. Okay. Which is I don't know any man lovesick or otherwise with a somebody fondling their, you know, a beautiful woman fondling their junk is not going to get it up. Okay. 
how how is that devil's advocate? Well, I just don't think it's realistic. Okay, is what I'm saying. That he might he might have in his heart wanted to be with Sabatha. He may have not been into it, but men are wired in such a way that it's not going to stop them from not being able to be physically responsive. You know. So I think it's acknowledged in the novel that that is unusual. There's something weird going on with Locke. Mm, okay. I will I will take that point and file it away. Yes. So have we talked enough about erections? Because <laughs> I got to get a certain amount in you know, on each podcast. We can always come back to it. Okay. All right. We still have like two more chapters. <laughs> <laughs> There could be some erection conversation. <laughs> well, the interlude, the next interlude we're talking about is called Brat Masterpieces. And it's pretty short. But yeah, it, it goes is. it goes back to a conversation with Chains, and he is talking to Locke and Jean about fighting. And he kind of mentions also in there um that that these kids, which we've suspected before, but he considers them his life's work. Yeah. And he's he's crafting them into something. And in the interest of that, he brings Locke up to the roof and makes him face his shortcomings. And his main shortcoming is that he's not ever going to be a fighter. Nope. He's he's small. He's scrawny. It's just not his gift. Yeah. I love this line where he's, Locke is apparently, he doesn't like facing that. He's like looking down. He's like staring at his feet. And uh, Chains says, quit acting like there's a fucking naked woman on your shoes. Get over it. Suck it up. Because that's what 10-year-old boys think about. Well, it's just funny because because I read it and I was like, but wouldn't me having a naked woman on your shoes be a a bad thing or a good thing? Like I didn't understand. (laughs) I was like, oh, because he's staring at his shoes. I get it. But yes, this whole change relates to the boys as though they are much older than they are. Because they, you know, emotionally and mentally probably are. Also because change is constantly fucking high. Yes. Can we acknowledge? Yes, he abs- absolutely that he is hitting the chronic hard. Absolutely, because this is the second time that that Scott Lynch has made reference to the pine scented tobacco that he uses. Right. Absolutely. Um, so another kind of interesting thing in this conversation is that Chains gives like a rundown of his gang and lists their strengths. He's putting together, he's putting together a D and D party. He is. He's got his DPS character. Mm-hmm. He needs a tank. Yeah. And he figures Jean is going to fit that mold. Absolutely. And he, he says this about him. He says, you have a knack for smacking brains out of heads and that's neither good nor bad in itself, but it's something we can use. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting because in the beginning, when Chains meets Locke, he makes it very clear that that murder is not okay. Yeah. You know, he Locke got some of his friends and his old gang killed. And that was he was given a very stiff consequence for that. So but we see here that Chains isn't against violence. He's not even against killing if it's necessary, if it's done purposefully for a reason mm-hmm. but again the difference highlighted between murder and killing um it's just an interesting like again view morality of, is your perspective exactly so chains tells john that he is sending him to the house of glass roses that house of glass roses yo mm-hmm. 
The House of Glass Roses is interesting, and, and I liked this concept. Yeah. So this is, we see so much elder glass all throughout the city, and all this stuff that was left behind by this previous civilization. What were they called? The Emberlane, or what are they? The Eldrin. The Eldrin, Okay. The Eldrin and their elder glass. Okay, I'm beginning to see the connection here. I get language. <laughs> and, you know, so we see all this el- these elder glass structures, but this is a structure that is not at all like anything else we've ever seen, where it's like a garden full of 100,000 roses, all of them completely translucent, carved out of glass as though it was a moment frozen in time, but it's all made of elder glass. And that, it's a pretty amazing thing. And from what we know, it's the only structure like this that we've, we've seen. Uh, but it also is incredibly dangerous. And, you know, if you touch it, it's razor sharp. But also, if you touch it and bleed, it somehow absorbs your blood. So metal. So metal. <laughs> These roses are so metal. (laughs) So I thought it was interesting. We have seen a couple of instances now where we've seen an item that was either white or clear that had a drop of red or a drop of blood inside of it, and they all had some sort of magical component to it. Really? What was the other? So the first is Barsavi's ring, Mm. which there was like this white pearl ring, but it had a a red drop inside of it. So it was like a translucent white material. Good catch. And it was, you know, when we sort of picked up on Barsavi and his, um, when he was sort of questioning Locke and he was using a little bit of magic and we were sort of seeing that he is familiar with sorcery at some sort of cursory level. Some of the first uh, of that that we saw. The second time we see it is the candle which is sort of this white, waxy, translucent candle that has flecks of red inside of it. Oh, my gosh. I didn't catch that either. And then we see these elder glass roses, which are translucent, but you can see the red inside them where they're a little bit of blood. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know that those things are connected, but it's not as though we've seen 40 different things like that of all different kinds. We've seen three, and they all three share those characteristics. That is very good. So we'll have to see if that means anything or if Mm -hmm. it's just a coincidence. Yeah. I also think it's interesting how he keeps, Lynch keeps emphasizing um, the word alien in describing the Eldrin, and he keeps bringing up the idea that um, something drove them away. And Jean in this passage even outright says, wonders what could drive away beings powerful enough to craft something like this? Yeah. So I feel like that's an important question. Well, and we also had the thing we talked about last time where after the Eldrin left, the regular humans were afraid to go near the elder glass structures. Right. Now, we, you know, we're talking about a thousand years ago that, that we know of. So we don't really know why that was, you know, was it because they were afraid of the Eldrin, thought they would come back? Were they afraid of the magic or were they afraid of whatever chased the Eldrin off? We don't, we really don't know. The other question I have for you is, 
Is Elder Blast unique to Kamor, or is it all throughout the air, all throughout the the world? I don't think we know at this point. I don't think we do either. I don't. I haven't heard any reference to it. So one of the things that I part of the reason why I asked that question is because I'm starting to speculate whether or not the magic is tied to the Eldrin, whether that's somehow where that comes from. Hmm. But and do you know are the Carthani you know wizards tapping into something that they found that we just don't know about yet? But I. I it's hard for me to go any further down that road because I don't know that Elder Glass exists there. Right. So at this point, it's just really kind of wild-ass speculation. Right, yeah. I don't think we know that at this point. You're doing a very good job of not giving anything away. I am, aren't I? Good job, Liz. <laughs> so we get to meet the head of the the Black Jackets. Yeah, another Don. Another Don, Don Maranzala. And he is a, a fighting man. He runs the the school of, of swordsmanship, the best school of swordsmanship. And he teaches fancy lads how to prance around with little pointy sticks and follow rules. Exactly. But that's not what he's going to teach John, no. right? What's he going to teach John? He's going to teach John how to kill people with swords. How to kill people with a sword. How to knock brains out of heads. That's right. I want that on a t-shirt too. Yeah. It's interesting that, you know, I'm sure we'll find out over, over time why... Jean has gone away from that to to the axes. So I'm sure there'll be some sort of story to that. Chapter seven is called Out the Window. Oh, yeah. It's kind of funny. It's a, it's a humorous little... It's a funny chapter. Interlude here. And, you know, given the amount of tension right. that's going on in the chapter, it's still pretty funny. I mean, there's a lot of kind of funny stuff in there. I don't know about you, but I could just see this. And a lot of Lynch's writing, I, I could see it translating well to a screen and i could just really see this yeah i am shocked that all the stuff that people you know all the fantasy stuff that's getting picked up and that people are talking about and having production deals on that this isn't one of them i mean this book reads like a like a movie it does to me you know as much as i love king killer chronicle this would translate to the screen so much more easily right it really would. because of what we talked about because of the there it's not as much of an emphasis on internal dialogue and motivations and feelings and and it's yeah. but it's but it's funny dialogue and it's snappy action sequences and interesting plot you know yeah exactly and and the plot being no small part of it because let's think about the entirety of the wonderful but 800 book called the name of the wind where really not a lot of shit happens some shit happens, but not some, like this. Some shit happens, <laughs> but really not a lot of shit happens, you know. But that's not a knock. Great book, but that's going to be a, a hard thing to try to adapt to television. Of course, they're not. They're doing something in the universe, but right. still. It's just, this is ready to go, man. Right. This is ready to be put on screen. So, in this chapter, the Gentleman Bastards... Um, put a plan into motion to get out of one part of their conundrum, which is that Kappa Barsavi is expecting Locke to come to a confrontation with the Grey King, who Locke is also be mean, meant to be impersonating at That's the same right. time. He's got to be, he's got to be a jet. He's got to go fight the sharks. Right. Cause listen, when you're a jet, you're a jet all the way. That's right. Yeah. From your first cigarette to your last dying breath day. Yeah. Whatever. 
<laughs> Sorry. So they're they're they have a meal. And um, I just liked this scene because they're having a meal and they're talking about their poop. So I just felt right at home because <laughs> God knows in our house. That's, we talk about poop a lot. We talk about poop a lot. <laughs> so the first step of this plan involved a visit to Jessaline Dobert, the black alchemist. And we've uh-huh. heard her mentioned before. Yes, she, yeah, we've never, we haven't met her yet, but she's been, she, she's shown up in the interludes. And now we get to see her in the quote present time, right? So we so we meet Jessaline and her daughter, and um, it, I thought it was Jellaline, Jessaline and Jellaline, Jellaline. <laughs> so, what did you think of this this interaction and, and these characters? There's really only one thing I noted, which is that the Sansa twins come up, and it's as though there's some sort of unspoken offer on the table. Like, we're still open for business, you know? And she's like, yeah, we're still not interested. And then they just sort of go on. I'm pretty sure the offer was their penises. Oh. (laughs) So, okay. So we're helping to up the erection quota. I appreciate that. I'm just saying. A little slow on the uptake. (laughs) It's... I didn't pick up on that, but I guess they're uh, they're granny chasers. I don't know. I mean, well, no, they were saying it to the daughter. Oh, Jellaline. Right. They like that jelly. I, they did. You got to get that jelly roll. I mean, I'm not saying maybe they were after Jessaline too. Maybe they were going to do a whole family action thing. But yeah, brother, brother, mother, daughter. Oh, that's weird. That's very weird. <laughs> Which is why I didn't think of it because I'm not fucking weird. Well, I am Scott Lynch. <laughs> fucking weirdo so um yeah we don't know but i yeah i took it as um as galdo just always hits on them when he comes in there you know and they have a a cute little interaction but you can tell that that jessaline is uh tense er than usual and you also get a sense about how dangerous it is to be a black alchemist yeah because i mean they have a very strict weapons policy that they follow very, you know, very carefully. Right. So, um, Callow and Galdo, and and these are obviously they've known Jessaline since they were kids because yep. they've had dealings with them before. Another female character. And they walk into her shop, and she, they're greeted with a a crossbow, which is aimed at them the entire time they are there. Yeah. So a, a woman the they've that known that the, their yeah, whole lives. Yeah. Exactly. And her her daughter is aiming a crossbow at them, and when she goes into the back to get something, she hands the crossbow to the mother. Yeah. Like it's pointed at them the whole time. Yeah, and they they had this cute line, which was "We're harmless as kittens." More so because kittens have claws and piss on things indiscriminately. Yeah, <laughs> that just made me laugh. But yeah, it highlights how a how dangerous and kind of scary black al- alchemists are, and also how tense the underworld is since Nazca's death. Well, it sort of makes you wonder. So, if Jessaline, who is an alchemist who you know ostensibly knows a lot about alchemy sorry that seems obvious but i would imagine probably has some insight into magic probably more so than the average person does and she sees people that she's known since they were children and yet she still is worried about them i imagine she's not really afraid of calo and galdo so why would she be so afraid my speculation is that she would be afraid of somebody impersonating them it's possible. And is that is that possible? I don't know. Well, 
I think in a world where people illusionists exist who can sort of vanish you out of a park and make things appear and disappear around you, then it would be highly possible for them to act like Calo and Galdo and be like people, you know, be able to fool somebody who's known them for all their lives. Mm -hmm. So she has to just sort of be extra careful about that. Right. That's the only reason why I can think that at least with these two around that they would show that high of a degree right. of concern. Right. Uh, she does also mention though that part of what's going on is the craziness since Nazca's death and she just doesn't know what's what's yeah, going yeah. on. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole underworld is 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 gone upside down yep. at this point. And this is a, a a criminal society that has seen a relative amount of stability and it, and has kind of gotten used to that. Yeah. So the Grey King is really shaking things up. Mm-hmm. So, but Jessaline is able to give Calo and Galdo what they ask for, which is something that will make a person very sick, but then immediately better as soon as he wants to be better. Yep. So they give this to Locke, and obviously Locke is going to, to feign illness when it's time to go to the meeting with the Grey King, and it, it plan goes off, you know. They have, have their to say, sick show. This was a hard section to read, given our recent <laughs> adventures. <laughs> for, for those who may not have listened to the last few episodes, uh, the we Duke and I and, and all four of our children had a terrible stomach virus at the same time. And it was, yes. We didn't live 70 oh. feet up in a tower where we could just chuck the shit we out of window. We couldn't just chuck the buckets out. I was like, man, <laughs> I you, wish I had a canal. So you fuckers have it easy. You have no idea. <laughs> oh, there's not enough Clorox in the world. But... uh so my favorite part of this is that Locke says, I, I threw up all the food I've eaten in the last five years. I think I may have even lost my soul in one of those buckets. Can you check yeah. for me? And, and uh, Jean says, this twisted, sick little thing, I think it's right here in this, in this bucket. You know? <laughs> I think it's better, you're better off with it in the canal. Yeah. So that was a pretty clever little interaction. I like when Locke says, there are a few things I want to ask him, him being the Grey King. Philosophical questions, like... How does it feel to be dangled out a window by a rope tied around your balls, motherfucker? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted to say that to my father. Mm -hmm. I, I'm sorry. No. Where, I, I, that's, I don't know where that came from. I don't know either. I don't know where that came your from. Your father's a lovely man. So, Vine Highway. <laughs> well, one more thing in this section that I thought was interesting is they take a minute and they kind of discuss. Locke says, I wonder if this is how our victims feel. You know, yeah. what this completely fucked over and you are completely powerless. Yeah. And John's like, you picked a strange time to get all moral on me. Or to start to care. To start to care. But that's not where he Locke was says, from. you know, yeah, it's not, uh, it's not that. It's just, this is, this is not a feeling that I feel like I should have or we should have. And I'm not okay with it. And I just want to get, get this thing over with so we can go back to normal. Pretty much. Um, so the Vine Highway. Vine though. Highway. And we've talked a little bit about the the broken tower mm -hmm. and this the scaffold that runs up it and how they, because we know that elder glass is not destroyable or changeable by humans. Yeah. But somehow they have this one broken tower that was broken before the humans got there and they have built a scaffold around and on top of it. And this describes a little bit more how that works. They've got apparently a trellis that runs up the side and it's attached to the windows 
Mm-hmm. I, I imagine it kind of braced around the open windows. Yeah, yeah. And, and attached there, and there are vines growing up it that I guess add stability. Yeah. But apparently, Locke and Jean and, and the gentleman bastards use it quite often to get out of their window when they are sneaking past the other right people who are living in the tower. Yeah, when they don't want to be seen by the folks at the last mistake. Right. But of course, it couldn't go that smoothly. Or else we wouldn't have bothered to read about it. <laughs> so they they have a they have a, an amusing uh, interaction and a fight uh, where they are climbing down the trellis and they as they're climbing down another gentleman is sneaking out of what is probably his mistress's window mm-hmm. and he's going to sneak down and they all run into each other and it's this sort of like slapstick like what are you doing what are you doing rock, 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 rock. Yeah, yeah. and they they start fighting on the trellis and the guy falls off and they shove their way into the the lady's bedroom and mm. she's in her small clothes and mm-hmm. then the husband bursts in and says two at once and there's all kinds of innuendos yeah it's glorious <laughs> so my favorite part of that is when Locke says <laughs> she came before we came <laughs> exactly right <laughs> That was my favorite part, too. Was it? Yeah. <laughs> so we also get to see in here, this is the first time we get to see Jean fight. Yes. And he's a badass. He's a badass. So it's. It, I think that that was one of the purposes of this section, too, because we've seen in the interludes, okay, he's him starting this training, and now we kind of see what the fruition of that was. Yeah, yeah. A little bit. Well, also, this was a, a guy who was armed. Jean had his axes. He thought about taking him out, but didn't. Right. And he ultimately fought him unarmed. And it pretty much cleaned his clock in, in oh, what yeah. seems like probably 30 seconds. So for, yeah, for him to be able to, to, to choose to fight this armed guy who was noted, you know, one of the physical descriptions of him was that he was a slab of muscle. And for him to choose to fight him unarmed and clean his clock in 30 seconds, he's a pretty badass dude. Yes. Was John Tannen. But he refrained from Don't throwing him Gene. out the window. He did. Even though his wife was like, yeah. she was like, kick their asses. No, wait. Now throw him out the window. <laughs> yeah. And John's like, can you pick somebody? Or uh, <laughs> Locke was like, yeah, can you pick somebody and stick with them? <laughs> <laughs> so she's a definitely a fair weather fan for sure. Fifth female character we've seen. There you go. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, they can't all be the donut. They can't all be Felice. They can't. That's for sure. Yeah, and so it sort of ends uh, unsatisfactorily for me, who has to wait it, to read it, where Jean says, it's a good thing we have these stupid hats. And Locke says, well, I guess we're under really under the wing of the falconer. And that's it. Right. And unfortunately, it is only going to get worse from here to the end of the book because there is there are no good places to stop. Well, that means there's going to be a lot of action. So I'm going to I'm going to choose to look at that in a positive way. I think that you should. So I will say um, to to listeners who might be reading along with us, we are going to stretch things out a bit and have a bit longer sections until the end of the book because of that, but not about the same length that we did this week around 80 pages yeah it's not what we're aiming for well we i think we're going to end up covering this entire novel in about 11 episodes i think is what we said possibly 10 or 11 yeah so which is what we covered the name of the wind in right uh just the first i think 
the first one or two episodes of this book club, we were doing around 40 or 50 pages. And now we're we're getting a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, but just so that... This is such a fast read. It is. That it doesn't feel like that. It is. And, and, and again, the cliffhangers are going to get... Because it just gets... The pace definitely builds from here. So well, I'm excited for you to read gonna it. Just going to have to deal with it. So do you have anything else for... For the book discussion, no. No? All right. So you ready for predictions? Yes. All right. I have three bold predictions. Yes. The first one is Nazca's not dead. Okay. The second one is the Grey King is Locke's father. I am your father. I am your father. And the last one is that Locke eventually kills the Falconer. Okay whether on purpose or not. Okay. And it's going to become a major problem. All right. I sort of I sort of anticipate him not doing it on purpose, mm-hmm. like it not being purposeful. Right. Or it getting pinned on him when he didn't actually do it or something along those lines. Okay. But I sort of, so it's not even so much that he's going to kill the Falconer, but I think he's going to take the hit for it. I think the Falconer is going to die and he's going to take the fall for it. Mm-hmm. And it's going to become a major problem for him. I do not feel, this is weird for me, these predictions, because... Like, the Grey King being your father feels a little heavy-handed. Right. And there's evidence in the text that tells me that Nazca probably is actually dead. Mm-hmm. But there's, but yet somehow, like, I f- I'm reading it and I'm like, she's not dead. Mm-hmm. Like, I just feel like she's not dead. And I don't know if that's because maybe I caught some hints that I'm not grasping consciously, but subconsciously I recognize them. Mm-hmm. Or if I just have some weird notion in my head that she isn't dead. Mm-hmm. But I don't think she's dead, despite evidence to the contrary. And I feel like the timing of Locke's revealing that he has a father right around the Grey King mm-hmm. leads me to believe that those two things are connected. He's mm-hmm. the right age. He's got the same kind of body built type. Mm-hmm. You know, there are different things in there that lead me to believe that that might be the case. It could also be that Scott Lynch wants me to think that, and mm-hmm. it's a and it's a nice red herring. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with that, but uh, those are my predictions. Good predictions. We'll see. We'll see. I'd like, I also want to, you know what, I'll go ahead and make it a fourth. I'm going to say that the magic system in the world is tied to the Eldrin. Hmm, I like it. I'm going to say it's tied somehow. I don't have enough yet to say how or that it's tied to Elderglass specifically, but somehow the Eldrin are the source of all the different magic or at least most of the magic in the world. That's what I'm saying. I like it. That's my prediction. I'm sticking with it. All right. Oh, goodness. So thank you. That was a good section. And I didn't have to wait 20 days to read it like we did the last time. And now I get to read again tonight. I'm so excited. I'm going to be watching you out of the corner of my eye to watch your reactions. So we have an email. Oh, yes. We have an email to advice at the Duke and Duchess podcast dot com. <laughs> nice. And the, the email says, dear Duchess. Oh, boy. I'm a student at a school for wizards. I'm very focused on my studies, but my two closest friends are two stupid idiot boys who are always getting me into trouble. Oh, no. I'm trying to focus on learning and graduating, but these two knuckleheads are getting in my way and doing stupid stuff. 
What's worse, one of them is some sort of chosen one who is always getting himself nearly killed. I'd like to find more female friends, but all the girls in my class just seem to be made out of cardboard. I want to graduate and become a wizard. What do I do? Signed, Hermione G. Well, Hermione, I'm glad you wrote. You know, I got to say, don't discount the value of a few good cardboard friends. Mm. I mean, A, they make you look deep in comparison. True, yeah. It's never bad. You can stage them in front of you and if you're having a Nerf gun battle. Exactly. Uh, B, you could boil them down in a pinch to make a hearty uh, yet nourishing porridge. Okay. So I'm just saying, stick with the women. Chicks before dicks. <laughs> Vulvas before nulvas. What? I just made that up. You're just up. making shit up now. <laughs> I totally made that up. <laughs> this, is a, this is a Duke and Duchess exclusive. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I want that to be my legacy. <laughs> <laughs> well, too late. We don't edit shit, so, so we're going forward. Onward and upward, never looking back. That's our motto. Uh, we did have a um, a note for the Dear Duchess on Twitter as well. From Okay. Well, this letter is from Bran S., and it says, I really wish you could have helped Jamie L out and he could have stopped fooling around with his ex. <laughs> <laughs> so Bran, again, I, I apologize. Things can't always work out the way you want. If you're feeling suicidal in any way, <laughs> like you might jump off a tower. I just really encourage you to talk to someone about that. Stay away from open windows. Stay away from open windows, Bran. <laughs> No more climbing. <laughs> no more climbing. Do you, so. We have some other interactions on Twitter. Yes. That you want to me yeah, to read them? Absolutely. We have a couple of notes from a, a new listener, Erica, and she is at, and I'm just going to spell it because it's a lot of letters. It's at K N J Y M Y H O O R B R U uh, on Twitter, and um, she came to us through a recommendation from Patman Twenty Three. Yay. And um, she has, she said, I, I don't know who Chad and Flash are, but now I have to give them a listen because they're doing Lies of Locke Lamora, and I love the Gentleman Bastard series. And then she came on a few times to tell us that she was uh, enjoying the podcast, and uh, she says, uh, on episode four so far, and I love that one of you started without any prior knowledge and that one was already a fan, makes a fantastic combo. Mm -hmm. um, so we, thank you, Erica, we enjoy your feedback. Welcome to the podcast. Absolutely. you get into it more. Uh, Mandy at CasterQuest plugged us to listener uh, Dil Dylan Campbell. He's at Dylan Campbell. He was looking for book suggestions, so thanks for that. And also she suggested Stardust by Neil Gaiman, which is one of my mm. favorite Neil Gaiman books. Great novel. Second only to Neverwhere, um, which is absolutely one of my favorite books of all time. Neverwhere is another one of those examples of sort of this alternate universe thing that happens, but one that's done really well it's it's done really well because the the point of it isn't going into the alternate universe it's the emphasis is on what's cool and creepy in our world yeah. in london of our world i agree i love that um so there were a couple of longer discussions that that you had with some people with uh, uh ian crone and games is lit about vagrant story and i'm not going to read that 
whole discussion. Uh, Ashley Marie says that Conte, in her head, looks like the bodyguard from the Titanic. Mm. So I liked that casting. I haven't ever been able to really picture Conte, but that guy is gray-haired and very sour-looking. So yeah. that's definitely what, uh, what what Conte looks like to me. Yeah. Um, Adam at LFC Adam 88185 asks us, do you think by taking notes and rereading sections of the podcast has changed the way that we read? And I would say yes. Mm, okay. Um, you know, right now, and you kind of answered him on Twitter, but, you know, for me, I'm I'm going through Brandon Sanderson's Stormlight Archive is one of the things I'm reading right now. And I do find myself stopping and thinking more. And mm. a couple of times I've almost stopped and went to write some notes or, really? or went wow. to write a note down. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. I'm not might do this in the podcast in the future, but <laughs> I, I am. I am reading, definitely reading deeper into the stuff I'm reading. Some of the stuff I'm reading. Um, he also said that as as he rereads, he thinks things like, oh, I smell lemons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just funny. Ian James Crone at Ian Crone says, would you let your oldest child read the King Killer Chronicles or the Gentleman Bastards? Yeah, I thought that would be a good discussion for us to have. What What do you think? Well, I'm trying to go back and think if there's anything in there that's really inappropriate. Like, I, I think... As far as so far, I'm looking at Lies of Locke Lamora and I'm thinking no, because there's just a little bit too much conversation about sex that's sort of outright. And I'm going to go. Well, there's wench, a lot of F bombs, a lot of F bombs, a lot of wenching of brains out and things of that nature. Right. And so I think at this age, for our 12 year old, I would say no. King Killer, I, I don't think there's anything in King Killer I can think of. You know, that, uh, Name of the Wind, I would say no. Uh, certainly the Fulurian chapters of Wise Man's Fear uh, might be a little mature yeah. for a 12-year-old. It, yeah. It, especially our, well, I'll be honest, our 12-year-old is not interested in anything that, that has to do with humans. Um, <laughs> Good point. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't think she would be interested. But no, I, I'd say for a 12-year-old, it would just really depend on the kid. Certainly in the next few years, I'm sure she's going to be, our kids will read these in the future. Yeah, I think for sure. Yeah, just just not at this point. I gave her a copy of Game of Thrones. She's up there reading it now. <laughs> I have recently started uh, reading some of the books they're reading. And, and I, I we, we spot check their books, you know, but um, since we've started this podcast, They've been asking me to read the stuff that they're into. And our kids are readers. They're like, they really are. They're bookworms. They want to like have book clubs with me. They want to like talk. So some of it is is like, oh, great. And some of it is uh, into, oh man. <laughs> so, um, yes, it's not necessarily the most exciting stuff if you're not a 10 year old or a 12 year old. Right. Right. So, yeah, um, our our 10-year-old is very into uh, Rick Riordan. So yes. all the, the Magnus Chase and the Percy Jackson. Um, you know, I, I'm reading the Dork Diaries series right now. <laughs> OMG. <laughs> and, and the Warrior Cats series. So, yeah, but I, I do, I do like, we're kind of going, I'm kind of going off topic here, but <laughs> it, it brings, it brings me into their world a little bit. So, so I do it and it's, I, I love encouraging them to read and to think deeper about reading. So, yeah. But the answer at this point is that for our 12 year old, 
for both of these series would be no. We'll probably no. Right. Um, let's see what we had someone uh, ask us about um, Brandon Sanderson's books. Yes. Um, so Eric Geiger at Eric Geiger asked, uh, said, I'm going to jump into Brandon Sanderson's books. Uh, is it a good move and where do I start? And I, I answered him on Twitter, but I I will kind of talk about it a little bit here because I'm I'm on book three of the Stormlight Archive. And I, I can't remember if I talked about this last week when we, yeah, I did. So yeah, I mean, I, I always start out the series being like, oh, it's so slow. But then I once I get into it, I, it like, consumes my life and I I really do like it. So I mean, I would say Brandon Sanderson, his strengths are his his world building, the way he his magic system is just always so unique and well done mm-hmm. and it makes you want to write things on charts. I mean, it really does. <laughs> <laughs> if you're into that sort of thing, you know. And I am. Yeah. <laughs> so um, his world building is very interesting. His his action sequences are really well written. I'm the kind of person that tends to skim action sequences. Like if it's like yeah. a long battle and this blow and that, I'm like blah 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 blah. But I read his like it's just well written. Yeah. So it, it kind of depends on what you're what you're looking for. Um, his characters aren't as deep or nuanced as say Patrick Rothfuss's are. Very few characters are. Yeah, yeah, that's. But so it depends on what you like, but easy to read. Um, and I would recommend starting with either the Mistborn or the Stormlight Archive. Um, he does have a few standalone novels that are good. Some of them I didn't like. Um, he wrote a book called Warbreaker that, like, I could barely finish. I just didn't like it at all. But hmm. that's my answer to that. Gotcha. I, I think we had one more interaction on Facebook from Theo at from Theo at the OGB. Do you have that one there? Yeah, I have it here. So I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's long, but I will I will bring out some of the things that I thought were interesting. So one of the things he says is he says, not sure about Nazca being killed for such a well-drawn character. I'm inclined to think that she's not dead. It's a body the Bonds Mage has made to look like her, but it still smacks of fridging to me and the, the trope of women in refrigerators. Have you heard of this? I have not heard of this. So it's just the idea of when authors or TV writers or film writers use women and putting women in danger as a means of plot device. So oh. it's it's the old tying a woman to a train track so that the so that the protagonist will come out and have the bi- right. the battle, which is almost exactly what this is. Right. You know. Um so you know, it's an interesting thing that we can talk about and can think of a hundred of examples, hundreds of examples of just that exact thing, right? You know, happening. So I think the entire character of uh, Sansa Stark is a woman in a refrigerator, right? You know, um, so interesting point about that. And he he also sort of does not think that Nazca is is killed, which it's interesting to me because. I had that thought, and then I read it, and I'm and he's reading along with us, right? Where he's not reading ahead, right? And he had the same sort of feeling. So that is interesting. I feel like maybe there's something going on there that neither of us could necessarily put our finger on exactly why, but we're like, yeah, that doesn't it just doesn't seem right. So, which is going to be really interesting if she is legitimately dead, right? He said he wasn't sure about John's uh, introduction in the interlude. He said, coming off the back of reading Patrick Rothfuss, who really can write pain in such an amazing way, this just felt a little bit rushed. He said it fits the style of the book, but he just didn't feel very convinced about it. 
Well, and I think that's a good a good point. It's something we've talked a little bit about how what you've read recently um, provides a context for what you're reading now. And for me, when I first read both of these books, it was in this order. Uh, it was uh, Name of the Wind, Wise Man's Fear, and then I read um, The Gentleman Bastards. Yeah. So, um, but it is interesting how one influences the other, especially when, again, the main characters are kind of similar, but the the writing styles and the intent behind the writing are so different. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So I would agree that certainly the the description of, of Jean becoming an orphan and his e- emotional state is definitely not as fully realized as what we see in Name of the Wind. No, that's not um, what Scott Lynch is trying to do either. Right, but that's kind of not what yeah, it's yeah. about. Exactly, yeah. You know, for quote, I mean, quote, spending time in the woods and then spending three years in Tarbian, that was, you know, foundational to who that character was and a huge part of what that whole story is about, because it's all about Quoth. It's all about who he is and and what his fears are. And and you you don't, if you don't get that, then you don't understand all the ways in which he's so broken as coat. You know, the story doesn't make sense without it, but that's not the kind of story that this is about. This is about the gentleman bastards fucking shit up. Like, Right. You know, and turning society on its head. It's not about, you know, the struggles of this one person. So it's just very different things that they're trying to accomplish. And just the language is, is so different in both of the books. You know, Patrick Rothfuss writes, um, it's not flowery, but his his writing style is more descriptive. It's very yeah. elegant. You know the gentleman bastards. There's there's a lot of motherfuckers. Yeah, it's it's a lot more um, bright. It's flashy. It's yeah. I don't know. I like them both. I like them both so much. Like I couldn't pick. Yeah, but they're they're which just one I like better. But it's yeah. again, it's like saying, do you like steak or do you like chocolate mousse? It's like, well, yeah, I want well, I like them both. Well, it's like, do I want to read a poem or do I want to read a Spider Man comic? Right. Right. Uh, you know, they're just different things. You know, and these books are different things, which is sort of why I think it's probably unfortunate that they get compared so much. Well, and I think the fact that they were released very close together. Yeah. Again, and not on purpose, but I, I think that The Lies of Locke Lamora came out like a few months before, like less than a year yeah. before Name of the Wind. Um, and that's just kind of what happened. And because they're both, I mean, for me, these are the the best new fantasy that's come out in, in decades. Yeah, probably. in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're just going to sort of inevitably be compared to each other. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and the fact that they have these kind of roguish characters as well. You know, the main characters have I want a to lot crossover of... so bad. I know so many people <laughs> do. I do. Maybe if they get on television. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So is there anything else? Anything else you have there? That's it. Fantastic. Okay. So we did have one new iTunes review. It's a five-star review on iTunes, and it's a anonymous uh, you know, five-star review. So we don't know who you are, but you know who you are, and we thank you for that. We love the iTunes reviews. They help us to get our podcast higher in the rankings on iTunes, and iTunes is where about 75% of podcasts are listened to. So that's pretty important for us in our podcast. But 
It's not the most important thing to us. The thing that we love the most and that's the most important to us is word of mouth. And we've had a lot more uh, folks sharing our stuff and talking about us on social media. So that's great. But if you love us, you'll talk about us. You'll share about us. You'll talk to your coworkers about it or your friends or you'll share about us on social media. That's what we like. You can contact us on the website at the Duke and Duchess podcast.com on Twitter at the DND podcast on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess or on our Facebook group page by searching the Duke and Duchess podcast group. If you have a question for dear Duchess, you can email us at advice at the Duke and Duchess podcast.com. Good night, everybody. Good night.